Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring Chapter 1 of McHugh, the classic 60s spy novel written by Jay Flynn. Meet McHugh, America's number one secret agent, a combination of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer and Ian Fleming's James Bond. Like 007, he has an ultra-sophisticated taste for the finest liquors, food, cars, ladies, and hand-tailored suits. Like Hammer, he can pound the toughest thug's teeth in with a single punch, bounce back from the most vicious beatings, carries the biggest handgun around and isn't slow to use it, and has the most extraordinary gal pal ever. In this first book in this series, McHugh takes a leave of absence from his spy work to help out his lover's sister, who has found a dead mafioso in her apartment, her boyfriend missing, and half of San Francisco's mobsters after her. But soon the twisting trail leads back to his home base, and he finds the case involves not only the Cosa Nostra, but has a government aspect as well, and he is ordered back in service by the general who commands his loyalty. Foreign Killers Mafia Killers it's a killer of a plot, involving millions of dollars in stolen gold, international smugglers, and enough shootouts to send 007 screaming into retirement and frighten Hammer into surrendering his P.I. license. And then there is Loris. What can we say about Loris? You will have to hear about her for yourself. Move over, Velda. Make room, money, Penny. There has never been a woman like Loris before, or a hero like McHugh. You won't be able to wait for his other adventures. They are all espionage classics from the golden age of the 60s. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from McHugh, the classic 60s spy novel. Chapter 1 he had them spotted before he left the plane. Caution was a way of life, a way of staying alive, and McHugh had paused momentarily in the cabin of the DC-7 before going down the ramp. The corners of his wide mouth turned up in the suggestion of a smile. Two of them were waiting at the ramp between the loading gate and concourse of San Francisco International Airport. The collars of their topcoats turned up against the night-cool fog that hovered in the passageway. With steady, competent eyes, they scanned and cataloged the travelers. McHugh saw them exchange glances as he reached the ground. He read surprise and irritation in their expressions. The smaller one, with a face as sallow as the fog, tossed his cigarette away. They moved to intercept him, trying to do it in a way that would leave them in a position to scan passengers heading for airliners farther along the apron. McHugh, who had slept through most of the flight from New York, prepared to enjoy himself. He was just under six feet tall, a big-boned man who was lean at 195 pounds. The dampness was already curling his short hair, salted with gray at the temples. His face was weathered, with a permanent tan, and the nose had been broken. In the terminal lights, his eyes had the color of new maple syrup, the clear, light kind they make in Vermont, when the snow is still deep around the trees and wisps of steam rise from the broad rumps of the horses. 
His only luggage was a travel-worn attaché case that slapped against his left leg as he walked. He headed directly toward the gate, as if he had not seen them. He stopped abruptly, grinned, and grabbed with strong fingers. The men struggled to keep their feet as their heads cracked together. Their hats fell off and were trampled. The sallow one broke away and retrieved them, slapped his own more or less into shape, and jammed it on his balding head. He glared at the big man, who was laughing at them. McHugh, you're going to, he began. He stopped and looked at his partner, as if unsure what McHugh was to be threatened with. Get no cooperation from the FBI, naturally, the big man finished for him. He shook his head in mock sorrow. Did the Bureau really send Mural and Foote out in a cold, clammy fog just to tell me that? Nick Foote was tall, lanky, with a big-boned face. His partner, Jim Mural, was several inches shorter than McHugh, and he looked up into the pale brown eyes as though he were confronted by an unpleasant memory. Foote restored his hat to a suggestion of its former shape and muttered, You'll horse us once too often, McHugh. So? I just got off an airplane. I was minding my own business. Foote turned away to eye a group of departing passengers. Then he said, So this case isn't in your department. It's the Bureau's baby, and we don't need any help from the five-sided doghouse. McHugh smiled pleasantly. Case? Didn't even know you had one going. He took their arms, steered them toward a brightly lighted sandwich shop. Come on, I'll stand for coffee and you can tell all. Foot and Mural allowed themselves to be cornered in a booth with a view of the ramp. A waitress brought coffee. McHugh added a lump of sugar to his, leaned back, found a comfortable position, and yawned. Why the reception? He lit a cigarette and tossed the match into the small glass ashtray. Just having you show so quick is reason enough, Mural said in a sour tone. I live here. Really? I buy my goodies at Bloom's and write letters to editors in defense of cable cars. I have even been to the top of the mark. I went there to see the tourists. I go away for a little while and find you all shook when I come back. You live out of that beat-up bag you're carrying, Mural retorted. He lit a cigarette. Three days ago you were in Jamaica. You went there just because you like good rum. The deal that went thud was a coincidence. McHugh chuckled. The bag is for getting into better hotels with better ladies. There's a pint of rum in it. Hundred fifty-one proof. That figures, Foote said. McHugh sipped his coffee. When the waitress wasn't looking, he opened the bag and produced the bottle. A good portion went into the coffee. He met their eyes and said, Gentlemen? They shook their heads and looked unpleasant. The rum vanished. McHugh sipped the drink, smacked his lips, and said, you wouldn't turn out just for me. What is it this time? Spy? Saboteur? Absconding bank teller? What's the difference? Foote said. We got a booby prize. McHugh chuckled. Why do you figure I'm in this? We know you, Mural told him. Get this through your skull, McHugh. You better be on orders. Freelance it, and you've had the route. I made love to a bear and an iron lung for the FBI and found God. The strange eyes mocked them, and sold the story to the Reader's Digest. Now what shouldn't I freelance, and why do you think I would? Mural shut his eyes tight, then said, We have recently taken an interest in a blonde named Loris Anderson. She plays some piano and does some singing in a side street gin mill called The Door. 
Some of the door's steady customers are well covered in our files. Loris is one of the owners. According to the liquor license, you are the other, McHugh. The small businessman is the backbone of American prosperity, McHugh said in his Rotarian tone. And Loris Anderson is a neat package, Mural continued. She maintains an apartment on Knob Hill. Just by coincidence, that pad is listed as your voting address, McHugh. Four days ago, Loris phoned you at your hotel in Jamaica. Didn't learn much, did you? Wiretapping is illegal, Mural said. McHugh ran his tongue around in his cheek. Damn you! Mural looked around the restaurant and kept his voice low. All right. Loris has a sister, Nadine, five or six years younger, which makes her about twenty-five. Nadine has a great and good friend named Johnny Stover. Stover was last seen thirteen days ago when he bust Nadine and drove off, supposedly for a weekend in Monterey. We don't think he got there. We can't turn up anybody who saw him or his car, and it's one you'd remember, a Pierce Arrow Phaeton in cherry shape. The guy's an old car nut. You're running a missing persons bureau? When the missing person is an electrical engineer working on classified government projects, we do, Foote said curtly. McHugh yawned. Interesting. Well, internal security is the responsibility of the FBI. Have fun. He put a dollar on the table and stood. Call me if you get stuck. I know a good private eye. You saying you didn't come back to look for Stover? Mural demanded. Yep. Got an idea where you might find him, though. Oh? Uh -oh. The FBI men got up fast. He's probably hiking down some country road carrying a big tin can. Those pierces were real gas hogs. McHugh laughed and tucked the attaché case under his arm. God almighty! Mural's fists clenched. McHugh moved toward the door, pausing long enough to say, Don't bother tailing me. I'll be at the door. After that, I suppose I'll take Loris home. It was February and in February the rains come to San Francisco. They are carried by persistent, often violent storms that move down the coast from the north. The grassed slopes of Marin County across the bay turn from sun-dried brown to brilliant new green almost overnight, and the torrents sluice through the paved hills of the city. The rain blurs the lights of San Francisco and multiplies them on slick pavements. The semaphore traffic signals around Union Square and down on Market Street clang and flap their red and green arms and are widely ignored in the early hours of the morning. Stinging pellets of rain lanced through the fog as the cab passed a red light and nosed into the curb near the door. McHugh had watched through the rear window for other cars. There were no headlights in sight as he paid the driver and hurried across the sidewalk. He went down the five granite steps and halted, out of the rain, listening to the muted piano and the woman's voice. Not great piano, but good for a side street bar in San Francisco. Not a great voice, but rich and throaty, made for the blues. The door's door was an immense slab of weathered oak, studded and bound by wrought iron, with strap hinges. McHugh's fingers closed on the cold, wet handle, and he slipped inside. It was a long, dim tunnel of a room, with a handful of people spaced along the bar. The stools were old with the scars of their years, and the tables and chairs along the opposite wall were equally beat. Travel posters and reproductions of sporting prints fought for space on the dark walls. 
The air was heavy with the smells of beer and liquor and smoke and dampness and people. The piano bar was at the far end, illuminated by a single small spotlight recessed in the ceiling. McHugh listened, knew that Loris was playing for herself rather than for the few customers. The cone of light slanted through shifting layers of smoke, haloed corn-silk blonde hair, and built soft shadows on the fine bone structure of her face. The song was Blueberry Hill, and it was a slow, rocking lament, a stirring of memories. The bartender was new. He moved away from the cash register as McHugh put money on the bar. Drambui and a goldwasser. The man reached for a pair of shot glasses. McHugh whistled softly through his teeth, shook his head, and said, Liqueurs should be served in pony glasses, even here. The barkeep stared hard. He started to shrug, but something in McHugh's face stopped him. Yes, sir, he said. He set up two pony glasses and poured. McHugh carried the drinks to the piano. The tiny yellow flecks in the goldwasser caught the light as he eased himself onto a stool. He watched the woman as he lighted a cigarette, saw the flaring match reflected in wide-set green eyes. Her fingers missed a chord as he grinned and said, Hello, Loris. The song tapered to nothing as she stood. She tapped a switch, and the baby shot faded as she came to sit beside him, a tall woman with high, small breasts, flat stomach, and long, tapering legs. She wore an electric blue cocktail gown, and she moved with an easy, natural grace. She raised the goldwasser in a toast. McHugh, this do make it nice on a rainy night. He nodded, smiling, as he took her other hand and brought it to his lips. He kissed the saltiness of her palm and drew a circle with the tip of his tongue. He felt her leg tremble where it pressed against him, and her nails dug lightly into his cheek. It do. Can we enjoy our rainy night, or won't the deeds of daring do wait for the morning? She drew her hand away and took a cigarette from his case. As McHugh held the light, she said, I'm for the night. But would you mind talking to Nadine first? Sure. You know what I'll tell her. Please, just say you'll see what you can do. Face it, honey. Little sister has lumps coming. The sooner she gets them, the sooner the bruises will go away. McHugh's face was grim as he sipped a scotch liqueur. He considered the way so many fine women tracked down and attached themselves to men he classified as being no goddamned good. So she's involved with a guy who all of a sudden isn't around anymore. The best thing I could tell her is to write him off. Loris, I know the Johnny Stover type. He's not right for Nadine. You should know this, too. I don't know it. Neither does Nadine. You will. McHugh finished his drink and ran his fingers through his still damp hair. You think he took off for Monterey to look at sea otters? Ha! No more than I think the senorita I heard singing in the shower when I called your hotel was the chambermaid, McHugh. Her voice was husky, and her fingers tightened on his hand. Lover, a lot of my friends don't approve of you. It's been a long, long time since I had an invitation to a Pebble Beach house party. That's the way the rules are. I don't mind. McHugh went to the bar for refills. When he was on his stool again, he said, Comparing me to Johnny gets you no points at all. Damn it, I wish you'd stay off airplanes. They make you about as reasonable as a wild boar. She crushed her cigarette on the floor. I wasn't making comparisons. No? McHugh raised an eyebrow, let it drop. No, 
I couldn't. She took another cigarette. It's been nine years, and I think I know less about you now than I did in the beginning. You're with me for a week or a month or maybe two. Then you get a call on that phone with the scrambler gadget or someone I've never seen before shows up, says a few words to you, and you walk out from behind the bar in the middle of a shift. I know one thing about your job. It's offbeat, and there's enough brass behind it to make four-star generals bow and tug their forelocks. But when you're not working at it, you'll take whatever kind of horsing our rum-dum customers feel like handing out. She puffed on her cigarette and brought her face close to his. I'm certain of just one thing about you, McHugh. I love you. That's enough. Good. McHugh hoped Loris would never become aware that the rum-dum customers were, for the most part, agents of an assortment of nations, friendly and otherwise. They made the door a no-man's land, a club of sorts where opposite numbers could and often did drink together and practice telling lies and picking each other's brains. Can you understand it's the same with Nadine? You look at Johnny or into him or whatever and decide he's a worthless son of something. To her, he's charming and considerate and possibly brilliant. Whether he is or isn't doesn't matter. Nothing does except she's in love with him. Women, McHugh said. He's a competent engineer, but he's not charming. He's what us country boys call a city slicker. He's calculating, not considerate. He knows what he wants from a woman and has the intelligence and patience to work her around until she'll crawl on her knees to give it to him. The truth, Loris said slowly, is probably somewhere in between. Probably. McHugh considered Johnny Stover, tried to understand how a woman would see him. Tall, reasonably good-looking without being handsome. Sharp, knowing gray eyes and blonde hair, and a way of being a boy and a man at the same time a man who could say the right things in an easy way, a man who danced well, knew the good places to eat, and how to hold his liquor. He had a modern, discreet bachelor apartment in the city and a small farm down the coast near Half Moon Bay. There he had a well-equipped machine shop and laboratory of sorts, where he did much of his engineering work, and a barn full of old cars rescued from junk heaps and restored to showroom shape. McHugh would concede that Johnny Stover was an excellent craftsman. I don't know how much the FBI has, but they must figure he's still around town. At least a couple of the boys were keeping an eye on the airport. McHugh told her of meeting Mural and Foot. Think of any reason for him to skip out? No. The last time he was in with Nadine, he didn't act as if anything was bothering him. When was that? What did he have to say? The bottom of Loris's glass was wet and she made interlocking circles on the dark surface of the piano. Two or three nights before he disappeared? Two, I think. I was at the piano, and they sat there, but I didn't hear much of what was said. I wasn't really listening. Try to remember. Well, there was something in the papers about then, about a new type of interceptor missile. I think he was telling her how the guidance system worked, or trying to. She ran the tip of her tongue along the full curve of her lip. He talked about his cars. Motor Trend gave his restoration jobs a three-page picture spread last month. He said he wanted to take a trip, talk to some other collectors, and try to find a couple more classics to work on. Huh, McHugh winced inwardly. The door was no place to even mention a classified project. There's been no trace of Johnny or his car. Could be a good sign. 
I don't see... Just a guess, McHugh said. I say he's pulling a sneak. Nobody kidnapped him. I don't know yet what his current project is, but I know the field he works in, and I know the Russians have their own versions of mechanisms he'd logically be assigned to. Theirs work at least as well as what we have. Johnny lives high, and I've heard more than one tough apple is holding his paper. Maybe somebody said pay and he couldn't, so he took off until he could figure something out. If this somebody was putting the arm on him, they wouldn't mess with that car. It's a one-of-a-kind job. It would have been dumped in the first available parking space. But there's no sign of it. So I say Johnny's hidden both himself and Mr. Pierce's arrow. I'll believe it, McHugh, but Nadine won't. McHugh shrugged. I won't try to sell it to her until I hear what she has to say. Think she's home? She was a couple of hours ago. I'll stop by. Call you back if I finish up before you close. Otherwise, I'll see you at home. Mm-hmm. Yes. Her mouth brushed his, and her tongue speared between his lips. Thanks, McHugh. For nothing. He took the attaché case back to the men's room, strapped the browning automatic that was in it over his left hip, and phoned for a taxi. The sweet aftertaste of her lipstick was with him as he went through the bar. Loris was at the keyboard again as he pushed the heavy door open and stepped into the drizzle to wait for the cab. The fog was still riding the freshening wind off the bay. It made a gauzy halo around the streetlight on the corner. When he got in the cab, he wondered how many eyes were watching from darkened windows. The apartment was a top-floor efficiency in a row house with a view of the waterfront. McHugh hunched his shoulders against the chill and climbed the stone steps to the entrance, the outer door was unlocked. He crossed a dim-lighted foyer to the stairway. The house had been built in the twenties, and there were three apartments on each of the two lower floors and two smaller ones crammed under the sloping roof. He heard radios or TVs going behind closed doors and the sound of at least one party. He found Nadine Anderson's door and pushed the bell. McHugh heard familiar chimes and then nothing. He jammed his finger on the button again. There was no response, and he tried to recall if lights had been showing in the windows when he left the cab. He took a small leather case from a pocket, studied the lock, and selected a thin strip of steel. He manipulated it between the door and the jamb. There was a faint click, and he pushed the door open and slipped inside. The browning was in his fist when he snapped the light switch. He was spinning to the right, hoping Nadine hadn't shifted the furniture as the light came on. He banged into a chair and sprawled on the grass-mat carpet. He rolled, got his feet under him, and swung the gun in a short arc as his eyes covered the room. The man on the couch stared at him. McHugh swore. The apartment was a mess. The chair he'd hit was overturned, and padding bulged through knife slashes in what had been fine leather. The drawers of a small desk and their contents had been dumped on the floor. Nadine's collection of charcoal sketches had been ripped from the pine-paneled walls and added to the pile. So had clothes and whatever had been on the shelves of the small kitchen. Cornflakes, flour, smashed crackers, and prepared mixes were strewn about. The man on the couch was still staring. He was a big man. The knife beside him was big, too. About the right size, McHugh thought, to have made the gaping hole in his throat. McHugh's lips pursed in a quiet whistle as he studied the splotches of blood. There was a lot of it, about five feet up the wall by the couch. 
It had run down to the couch, drenching it in red. Stepping carefully to avoid spots on the floor, he touched the body. There was still some warmth, and McHugh guessed the man had been dead about an hour. He searched his memory and concluded he'd never seen the man before. He backed away and checked the kitchenette and bath. They were empty. He went to the door, eased it open, and eyed the deserted hallway. His tumble over the chair apparently hadn't disturbed other residents of the building. He went out, locked the door again, and moved silently down the stairs. There was a phone booth in the lobby, and he called a cab. The service station half a block from the door was closed, but it had an outside phone booth. He paid the cabbie, found a dime, and dialed the night number of the FBI. Nick Foote answered. McHugh gave him the address of the apartment and said, There's a dead guy there. Hold it, mister, Foote said sharply. You should have called the city police, not us. Give me your name and I'll have them send an officer by. Where are you calling? Can it, McHugh interrupted. You want a guy named Stover, the stiffs and his girl's pad. He hung up while Foote was still talking and walked briskly toward the dim-lighted sign over the door. It was almost closing time, and there were no customers left. The bartender was wiping glasses. He saw Loris in profile at the piano bar. She sat without moving, eyes directed downward at the cup of coffee in front of her. There was another woman with her, Nadine. McHugh thought of the way the man in the apartment had died, and he needed a drink. He went behind the bar, grabbed a bottle of bourbon and a couple of glasses. Hey! The barkeep dropped his cloth and started for McHugh. What's the big... Laura swung around on her stool and called, It's all right, George. Yeah. He stared at McHugh, then shrugged. McHugh put the glasses on the piano, splashed whiskey into them and the coffee. Laura watched him intently. McHugh, what's happened? He nodded toward the glasses. Better have a jolt. They looked at the expression in his eyes and drank. Nadine made a face at the taste of the straight liquor. She gasped and said, Hi, McHugh. Hello, little sister. He got a cigarette going and studied her face in the light of the match. It was fuller than Loris's, but the mouth was the same. Nadine's hair was the same pale blonde, but cut shorter and curled. Been here long? She looked at her watch. About twenty minutes. How about before that? What do you mean? There was an edge of anxiety in her voice. The past few hours, say from 10.30 on? McHugh, what's the matter? Loris said. Quiet, honey, please. He turned to Nadine. Well? Fisherman's Wharf. Why? In a bar? How long? I got there about 11 o'clock in my car. I didn't go into any of the places. I was waiting in a parking lot. McHugh sighed. For Johnny, maybe? Nadine's hazel eyes narrowed. No, well, not exactly. I had a phone call earlier. A man said Johnny wanted to see me but couldn't come to the apartment. I asked why and he said he couldn't explain over the phone. He told me where to go and wait. He said not to get impatient because Johnny might be late. McHugh, what's happened? Somebody got you out of your apartment so they could search it. A dead man got left behind. Johnny? She trembled, her fingers curled into fists. He thought she might scream. No, I didn't know him, McHugh said quickly. He looked like a wrong type. McHugh? Loris's voice trailed off. The bartender was coming up and she shook her head. He went back to his glasses and she said softly, Oh, God. 
Nadine was shaking, staring vacantly at the curtain behind the piano. McHugh poured more liquor into her glass, and she drank it without a word. He got up and said, We better move out smartly. I expect a team of inspectors from Homicide will be making a call here soon. Oh, no, she blurted. McHugh, I don't even... McHugh squeezed her hand. Sure, little sister. You don't know a thing. But unless you want to spend the rest of the night talking to cops, you better come with me. He caught Loris watching him and said, With us. Wait, Loris said. She'll have to tell her story sometime. No doubt. McHugh took another small drink. In a couple of hours, the cops will likely decide no woman did that killing. Homicide will pick Nadine's brains and turn her loose. Until I know who the corpse is, or rather was, and what he was doing there, I don't want Nadine walking around. There was nothing in the place for anyone to take, McHugh, Nadine said. Maybe, maybe not. Your true love hasn't made muster for a couple of weeks, and he's being looked for. I don't know how many people are looking, but at least one of them must have thought he left something behind at your place, McHugh said firmly. Make that two people, the dead man and the killer. That pad's really torn apart, and I don't think whatever was being hunted got itself found. The lookers could figure you've got it or know where it is. Loris swung her long legs down from the stool. She went to an alcove and came back, belting a transparent raincoat around her waist. The car's in back, McHugh. Where do we go? The apartment? McHugh grabbed his attaché case. Just to meet the cops? He rubbed his heavy jaw in thought. I know a motel that should be good for a few hours. Nadine slung a gabardine raincoat over her shoulders and tucked her short hair under a Basque beret. McHugh hustled them through the back door of the bar into a station wagon parked in the alley. He slid behind the wheel, held his hand out, and said, Keys. He gunned the motor, backed the car around, and headed for the marina. The wipers slapped at the thinning rain. They passed a black-and-white police cruiser that was rolling fast in the direction of the door. The motel was on the rim of the bay, with a parking area shielded from the street by the double-decked buildings. The vacancy sign was on, but the manager was asleep. He shuffled into the office in striped pajamas and bathrobe and gave McHugh a baleful look. McHugh fingered a $50 bill from his wallet, put it on the counter, and reached for the registration card. Connecting doubles, he said curtly, and began to write. The manager considered McHugh's rumpled suit, the beard stubble on his face, and sniffed. He looked at the fifty and put eyeglasses on to peer through the window at the women in the car. Pretty late, he said irritably. How many? Three of us. McHugh chewed his lip and wrote, Bill Lambert, Mayor, Jamesburg, California. He jammed the pen in its socket and said, the fifty says you can fix us up. About the way it is, I guess. The manager took keys from the rack behind the counter. Up those outside stairs. Couple on the end of the row. Nice view. McHugh winked lewdly and went out. He parked and locked the car and led the way to the rooms. They were big, with rattan mats on the floors, double beds, and television sets. The walls were of pink-textured stone and picture windows overlooked the yacht basin and the bay. Matchstick bamboo drapes were drawn across them now. He opened the connecting door. Take your pick, girls. He felt Loris watching him as she slipped the plastic raincoat off, and he avoided the green eyes. He had been in Jamaica forty days. 
No talk about what we're going to do, because I don't know. I'm beat. I'm going to hit the shower. Good night. He strode into the bathroom, shut the door firmly, and began peeling his clothes off. He ran water until it was too hot for comfort, soaked himself in the scalding spray, and felt the travel stiffness burn away. He turned it on cold and allowed himself a yelp. He dried himself with a shaggy towel and went into the bedroom. It was dark except for the glow of a nightlight by the bed. Loris was sitting there, knees crossed, a speculative smile on her lips as she smoked a cigarette. She was wearing the transparent raincoat again. She stood, silhouetted by the light, and he saw that this time there was nothing under it. Loris, he stopped, and his eyes moved to the connecting door. It was closed. Don't be an idiot, McHugh. Little sister doesn't mind. His eyes took in the sleek, taut lines, the slender hips and ivory curve of thigh. He went to her, and she drew his mouth down and ground herself against him. The raincoat was a second skin. She twisted away. Her eyes were wide and bright, and her breath came in shallow gasps. Her hands tugged at the coat lapels. When her breasts were bare, she stood close to him with the small, erect nipples brushing his chest. Her fingers undid the belt. The coat opened all the way, and she pulled him hard against her. Sharp teeth bit his ear, and she whispered, McHugh, McHugh. McHugh slipped the raincoat from her shoulders and carried her to the big bed. She rose to meet him as his fingers pressed the nerve centers in the small of her back, and he felt her fingernails bite deep into the heavy muscle of his shoulders. We hope you enjoyed listening to this sample chapter from McHugh, the classic 60s spy novel. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.